So welcome everyone who's with us, uh, both online and in the room. It's just so good to have you at Access Church and hope you're blessed by our time together. We, over the last few weeks, have been looking at this topic called Come Together. We've just been working through this COVID season where it's been a time of separation. It's not only been a time of social distancing. In many cases, it's been a time of emotional distancing, even spiritual distancing. We need to acknowledge that and know what's going on in our hearts and uh, I guess act against that to correct that. And so we are saying that as a church, we want to come together in a similar way to the early church did in the book of Acts, in particular, Acts 2.42 explains this, this epic stuff they had going on where they had this devotion to fellowship and teaching, communion and prayer. And we want to grow in these same things and we're getting super gritty around these topics in how we go about this. We're not just having these as some grand ideas. We've got some practical measures in place here. In terms of fellowship, we've created this outdoor pavilion area so we can mingle outside in a COVID safe way, but also continue to develop our fellowship together. Mr. I. Peacock is going to be sharing God's word next weekend and developing further these ideas of fellowshipping together, growing our sense of community. So I'm excited for that. We are celebrating communion in every single one of our services between now and Easter. So we'll continue with that focus this weekend. Uh, we'll finish our time together with an emphasis on Jesus and all he has done for us. And prayer, we've just finished prayer week. We've done seven days continuously with a focus on prayer. We started last weekend with an emphasis on the Lord's Prayer. We'll continue that this weekend and uh, finish part B. Now, given that I started this message last week, I just want to quickly recap, do a quick flyover the material we covered last week. And it was this, in Matthew 6, where the Lord's Prayer lands, we find a corrective context. So that is, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus isn't just speaking to a void He's actually speaking to a real problem. And the real problem is that they had an outlook on prayer, the religious people at a time, that was pathetic. And this has got Jesus riled up, actually. The religious folks at the time were engaging in prayer in a way that was about them and not about God. One way that they were doing prayer in a way that was totally off beam was they were standing out in public and making sure that everybody could hear them praying. And they thought that that was a show of their spirituality and God would be pleased. Well, he was far from pleased. Another reason, another way that they were engaging in prayer, rather, was with a long-winded focus. And they thought that if they used a lot of words, a lot of kumbayas, a lot of Hail Marys, then again, there would be some kind of wearing down process like any parent. God would be worn down by their nagging and God would eventually give in. But Jesus says, no, 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 it's not like that at all. It's not like that at all. Know this, when you approach God, he knows your needs before you even say a word. He knows what you're going to say before you say a word. So go to him as a loving father who knows your needs. So this is a big idea we've been circling around these last couple of weeks. Prayer is not primarily a religious obligation, but a relational opportunity. And that's why we pray, to grow our relationship with God, to strengthen that connection with God. Now, we are commanded to pray. So in one way, it is somewhat an obligation. It is a responsibility. But the mindset we go into prayer with is not just, oh, no, I better tick a box. 
to please God. No, no, no. It's like a child jumping into the arms of a loving father and, and feeling that embrace and feeling that love and feeling that warmth in the same way we pray. So in the Lord's Prayer, in the first half we looked at last weekend, we noticed three opportunities. An opportunity to look up our Father in heaven. An opportunity to grow up where we make our lives about his kingdom and his will. And an opportunity to keep up, give us this day our daily bread. If we could move to the next slide. So we spoke about the opportunity to look up to our Father. I'm going to rush through. This is what we covered last week. But prayer is an opportunity to look up to God our Father. It's not this, Prayer is not emptying our minds and creating some kind of blank space where we can just dream up an image of God. No, we're addressing a real Father on a real throne. Prayer is opportunity to look up. It's an opportunity to grow up, to desire God's will and God's kingdom above my own. When I do that, that's good for me. But it's good for everybody else in my life as well. When Everybody wins when I take that posture of surrender to God. Prayer, though, is an opportunity to keep up as well with our daily needs. As we say, Father, give us this day our daily needs. We know that God provides just, just. Our daily needs are in view here. Not weekly, not monthly, not annually. We need to daily Rely on God. One of the most frustrating aspects about relating to God, he doesn't show us 10 steps. He just shows us the next one so often and calls us to that step of obedience. So as a sign of unity again, I'm going to invite you to stand and read together as we read the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6, and let's read together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Please be seated. May the Lord add his blessing to that reading of his word. Prayer is not primarily a religious obligation, a relational opportunity. So what do we discover in this second half of the Lord's Prayer? It's an opportunity to be free. It's an opportunity to be safe. It's an opportunity to be found. First, an opportunity to be free. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And this issue of forgiveness is so vital, I'm going to spend the most time here. An opportunity to be free. What's forgiveness got to do with freedom. Everything, actually. The person operating in unforgiveness is bound up. They're in debt. They're imprisoned. They're anything but free. Forgiveness is the entry point to freedom. Now, I know some of you will be ready to push back and go, Jono, if only you knew my story, you wouldn't be talking about forgiveness because what's happened in my life is unforgivable. Well, Please know something about me. I wasn't born yesterday. I've had a few of my own wounds to deal with in life as well. But still, you might play the card and say, well, you can't compete with my level of hurt. Mine would still be far greater than yours. Well, that's possible. But if you're going to compare to anyone, can I suggest you compare with Jesus? Check out 
his story, check out his treatment, check out his abuse, his betrayal, his misrepresentation by others. And yet in the midst of it all, he says, Father, forgive them, forgive them. When the fire was at its hottest, right there when he's in the fry pan, he says, don't hold this sin against them, Father, forgive them. They don't realise what they're doing. Jesus understood that by holding resentment, he just caged himself in. He just puts himself in prison with unforgiveness. Now, a one-off mistake is far easier to forgive than systematic abuse. I get it. And sometimes the messages that come out of churches like forgive and forget, well, they're not just bizarre, they're unbiblical. Forgive and forget, like I have control over my memory. Can someone show me where that switch is? This is an unhelpful thing to say. There's a ton of reasons we struggle with forgiveness. And if forgiveness doesn't feel like a struggle, you're probably not doing it right. You're probably not actually forgiving. You're probably just suppressing hurt. True forgiveness, it really stings. It's hard to work through. I gave a message on this last year called Dealing with Offence. So I don't want to do a deep dive this weekend. I just want to clip a couple of points made last year on the subject. Forgiveness is not necessarily reconciliation. We need to correct this misconception about forgiveness. When we muddle forgiveness and reconciliation, as churches often do, we muddle up people. We create false guilt. We cannot always reconcile with people. I'll say it again. We cannot always reconcile with people. God distinguishes forgiveness from reconciliation. God makes a clear distinction in our relationship with him. He forgives all people. God is willing to do that, but he's not reconciled to all people. All people are being offered forgiveness in Jesus, but all people are not reconciled to God. See, that's reserved for people who've repented. That simply means means turned from their way and turned their lives around and decided to go God's way. And that's when this reconciliation with God actually happens. It's when I come to him and says, God, I've messed up. God, I've hurt you. God, I've ignored you. God, I've left you out of my life. And in doing that, I get reconciled. What if someone never repents? Can they be forgiven? Well, yeah, technically they're forgiven, but that's not the problem. See, post the cross of Jesus, the forgiveness issue is done and dealt with. Jesus says, it is finished. The sin problem's no longer the issue. But the reconciliation with God only gets triggered by me coming to him and actually seeking that restoration. It's not too dissimilar in human relationships. We can forgive, but in order to be restored, there needs to be some movement on the part of the person who's done the hurt. Forgiveness is conditional. Sorry, I'll say that again. That was wrong. (laughs) Forgiveness is unconditional. Reconciliation is always conditional. See, when the person next door comes and spits in my face after punching me yesterday, says, I don't, I don't, I'm not sorry. 
I don't regret what I did yesterday. Can I forgive them? Yes. Would I be reconciled to them? No. No. I can't be until they actually admit they've caused hurt. I can't be reconciled without the repentance. Now, another thing about forgiveness is it's not an event. It's a process. It takes time. You say, John, does the Bible allow for that? Well, yeah, I think it does. I said a moment ago, if you think forgiveness is easy, you're probably not doing it right. You're probably just suppressing and pushing hurt away. So let's carry on with the story of the guy next door who punched you in the face. Now, you might have been a very gracious person and in the process of overnight, the 24-hour period, you've found God's strength to express forgiveness and you've worked on that resentment towards the person for their aggression, for their anger, and you've forgiven them. And we should forgive them. We should forgive them. But here's where forgiveness isn't necessarily a vent but a process. It pops up again from another angle. Let me explain. Say that person next door says the reason he threw you a punch, and this is a story spreading around the neighbourhood, the reason he tried to throw you a punch at you is because you've owned him money for two years and he's lent money over and over and over again to you and you'll never pay him back. And in great frustration yesterday he came over and when you wouldn't pay again it got physical, it got violent. Now imagine that was a story, only the opposite was true. You've been giving him money for two years and when he came over yesterday, you, you didn't actually have any more to give and you said, sorry, I can't help any more. And he got violent and threw a punch. What happens? You say, I thought you'd already forgiven him. Well, I did yesterday, but now the story has grown. Now the story has evolved. Now the story has changed. The dynamic has changed more because that's life. It keeps moving on us and we have to continue to express forgiveness and express forgiveness and express forgiveness. How do we do that? Instead of closing our fists towards our fellow humanity, we open our hands to God. It's as simple as that. We just continue to say, Lord, I give it over. I feel like striking back. I feel like getting angry. I feel like taking revenge. But I give it over to you. Tell God honestly how you feel and continue to give it over to him. Be kind with yourself. Forgiveness takes time. It's not an event, it's a process. Continue to just hand over your hurt to God. Release it to him. Thirdly, we're going to struggle with forgiveness if we try and do it within ourselves. It's not conjured up from within. It's only as I experience the indwelling Holy Spirit and his washing of my heart, his cleansing of my life and his mercy towards me that I'm positioned to pass it on. Interesting here in the Lord's Prayer, the logic is make sure you forgive others so that you get forgiven. But there's a shift as we move deeper into the New Testament and the logic very much becomes as Christ forgave you so you must do. We are then passing on what we have already experienced since you've been washed clean by the grace of God and only through the grace of God. You are now well credentialed to pass that mercy and grace onto others. 
we need to rush. I've spent most of my time here because forgiveness is such a critical issue. And if you're missing forgiveness, I hope you find it. Because if you, if you don't, it, it really becomes a major blockage in your life. And I think the text supports that with the progression that comes next. It seems apparent that if we don't forgive, we open up a door to darkness. Uh, Matthew 6.13 seems to indicate the devil can become activated in our lives in a profound way if we fail to forgive. And you see this often in scripture actually, there's a demonic association with unforgiveness. Very often where the Bible talks about forgiveness, it'll mention the activity of Satan in a follow-up part of the conversation. It kind of goes hand in hand it seems. There's a level of darkness that infiltrates my life if I take on resentment. And forgiveness is good because it sets me free, but don't miss the underbelly of that. Unforgiveness is bad because it binds me up. It binds me up. I give the devil a landing zone when I hold on to unforgiveness. So as we progress in the Lord's Prayer here, we see the opportunity to be safe. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Contextually then, is one of the great temptations of life to not forgive? I think so. I think so. The, the temptation of holding resentment instead of letting it go and giving it to God. This seems like an apparent logical flow in the text here. It's one form. The enemy will try and bind me up and make me a prisoner. And prayer is the opportunity for us to be free, but the opportunity for us to be safe. We call on the Lord to keep us from the evil one. And we need God's protection to be kept from the evil one. In case you didn't know it, you have an enemy. He hates God and he hates us. All that God is for, love and kindness and peace and unity and coming together, he opposes. He wants us operating in hate and anger and disunity. And the battle is for real. Go to it in your own time. Ephesians chapter 6 says this full, full of colourful description there of how the enemy tries to infiltrate and get into our lives and cause havoc. One way, the squeeze of evil comes to our lives is clearly temptation. It says it here in black and white, in the Lord's Prayer. Now, when we think about the demonic and the devil showing up in our lives, we often think pitchforks and fire and smoke and lightning and dramatic manifestations. But actually, I think it will most likely be quiet whispers and just common temptations of life. Don't think high drama when you imagine how Satan might show up in environment. Think quiet suggestions that are ungodly. Think a father of lies who comes along with whispers that are subtle but very strategic. Just take a wee little step away from God. It's no big deal. It's no big deal to exaggerate on your tax return. Everybody does it. The government doesn't need the money anyway. They take too much. No harm bending the facts a little. It won't matter if you sleep with the guy. You're engaged. You're getting married soon. You're committed. There's no shame in it. What do we do with these whispers? What do we do with these temptations? 
Do we enter into the conversation and use rationale? No, no, no. We don't flirt. We flee. We run a mile. It's the only safe thing to do. When the enemy came to Jesus, he started with the conversation. We turn these rocks into bread. Jesus was incredibly hungry, having not eaten for a long period of time. Now, turn rocks into bread, is that an evil thing? Not at all. Turn rocks into bread isn't evil. It's a perfectly fine thing to do. So why didn't Jesus do it? He knew it was a slippery slope to a fall away from his father's will. This is how the enemy works. He, his first suggestion won't be his final suggestion. He'll come with a little subtle message, but it's strategic. Just come a little bit away from God. I love the proactive nature of the Lord's Prayer. Before temptations come, pray them away. Pray them away. Lord, don't let us come to places of temptation. Don't just give me the strength to plough on through when they show up. God, keep them away from me. Keep me safe. Keep me safe from the evil one and all of his wicked schemes that are designed to take me away from you, Lord. The opportunity to be free, the opportunity to be safe, the opportunity to be, to be found, the opportunity to be found. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. The Lord's Prayer is an opportunity to be found. It's when I pray, yours, God, is the kingdom. Yours is the glory. Yours is the power. It's about you, Lord, which by implication means it's not about me. My life is about you and I'm found when I make it about you. Now, the astute reader of Matthew, chapter 6, should be going, Jesus, unnecessary words. Wake up, John. Didn't you cover this point last week? Didn't this come up earlier in the prayer when you were talking about growing up, about seeking God's will above your own? Isn't this essentially the same sentiments? Yeah, I think it might be. So why are these sentiments brought up twice in the Lord's Prayer? Well, from my perspective, they pop up twice because I need constant reminders not to let my life just slip into selfishness. I need to be constantly reminded, John, life is not about you. And the overriding decision grid in your life cannot be, what's in it for you? What's in it for you? Is this going to make you happy? No, no, the overriding decision needs to be, is this going to make me holy? And this is a totally different agenda for a God-centred person. It's a mindset calling me to abandon selfish ambition and chasing down a kingdom cause that's not just me, myself and I. Undoubtedly, there'll be some people hearing this going, why would I? Why would I give my life away? Why would I give up my rights for the cause of Jesus? I mean, this sounds like a thinly veiled request for a miserable existence. What I hear you saying, John, is this prayer is essentially God asking me to forfeit the opportunity for fun and just embrace sacrifice, just make my life all about him. Is that what you're saying? Well, sort of, yeah. Try making life all about you and see how it goes. <laughs> my testimony is it doesn't go well. It's empty, it's void, it's meaningless. 
You might know that already too. The path to meaning is quite peculiar. As Jesus approaches the cross 10 chapters on in the book of Matthew, it's hardly a time of fun and games. I mean, the shadow of the cross is bearing down. He's contemplating dying soon. It's very real. He knows it's coming. And Jesus is giving up his life in sacrifice and he says these words to his mates around him at that time. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Did you see the word in verse 25? Whoever desires to save their life loses it. Whoever makes life all about them actually winds up with nothing in their hand. But whoever gives their life away, we've talked about surrender already. Whoever surrenders, whoever lays down their life will find it. Find it. How do we find life, Matthew? Well, that's easy, he says. You'll lose the plot if you make your decision-making just about what makes you happy, what gives you glory, Jono. And if you actually want to find life, give it away. Give it away. There you'll be found. All about God, his kingdom, his power, his glory. It's a strange paradox that I find life in the pursuit of giving it away. Weird, isn't it? But I gain everything in giving it up. Uh, culturally now, we have people all around us trying to find themselves. Have you noticed? And they try and find themselves by looking within. They're self-identifying. It's one of the most common pursuits in our culture today. People are trying to discover their worth, find their way, uncover their identity. As though we have the capacity to do that. People are scurrying all around us, trying to work out who am I and how do I relate to the world. The Bible considers this futile. We don't get to self-identify. If we were self-made, perhaps we would. But self-identification would seem to me to require self-creation. And I'm not created by myself. I'm created by God, so he must call the shots on how life rolls. Let me explain it like this. If I go out to the workshop all day and spend an entire day crafting out a fruit bowl, a wooden fruit bowl and it's an amazing creation and you have to use your imaginations because I don't have these skills <laughs> but I crafted this amazing fruit bowl I spent all day doing it and I'm so happy with my work you know what wouldn't happen at the end of the day is that fruit bowl rises up and says I don't want to be a fruit bowl I want to be a cutting board well, that fruit bowl doesn't get that opportunity because it's not self-created. I created it, so I get to decide what happens with it. We've hit a cultural hot potato 
But I hope you don't hear this as a message of judgment, rather a message of encouragement, actually. That free, let's be free of this idea that we've got to self-identify, that we've got to work out who we are. No, 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 God has gifted us an identity. God has said we are his children. We have value because of our relationship to him. We were born by the design of a master planner. We are not an accident. Our identity is gifted and Christianity is the only religion that gifts this identity and says you don't have to earn it. It's a gift from a loving father. We are not an accident. And life starts when I see myself within the grand plan of God rather than trying to craft out an identity of my own making. Someone has said, God created man in his own image and we've been returning the favour ever since. But we don't get the right to create a God of our own making or even a self of our own creating. It's been gifted, but it's been gifted from the loving hand of a loving father. If we pursue our own agenda, our own way, we'll end up singing Jagger's song, I can't get no satisfaction. There's no satisfaction anywhere else but in God. C.S. Lewis said it like this, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And so we were. And we only find ourselves in that as we give our lives over to God, as we open our hearts up to him and say, Lord, I was made for you. I was made to live in connection with you. You have formed me. You have created me. You love me. And I open myself up to that and show me how to live. Would you stand for prayer? We're going to move into communion in just a moment as we celebrate this life with Jesus. And we are designed to connect with our creator. We are designed to be found in him and to make our lives about him. And communion gives us this opportunity to remember the death of Jesus and what he's done and to, to centre our lives again and say, Lord, thank you for giving your life. Thank you for shedding your blood for me. Thank you that my life is found in you. Thank you that you love me enough to come and lay down your life. So would you join me in prayer as we move towards that now? Lord, only you can fulfil us. Only you can help us make sense of life. Thank you for the opportunity the Lord's Prayer gives us to be free, to be safe, to be found. Oh Lord, help us be found in you. Help us, deliver us God, not only from the evil one, but from ourselves and from that futile 
pursuit of just going around in circles and saying, who am I? Who am I? What is my life about? Lord, let us surrender. Let us be found in you. Let your love and what you have done break in and make sense to us. Let us appropriate it. Live our lives out of that place of surrender that we've spoken about.